0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chafas. Today, I want to share with you a remarkable detective story which spans more than 25 years. A quest to discover the identity of a mysterious spice used in Indian cooking. First, let's meet the detective.
1: So I'm Priya Mani, and I'm a Copenhagen-based designer. I grew up in India. For the last about little over 10 years, I have been working on a encyclopedia of Indian food, uh, learning along the way, of course.
0: I've known Priya Mani a little while, and I'm a big fan of the Instagram account of her visual encyclopedia. But one ingredient that hasn't yet made it into the encyclopedia was the subject of her quest and an article Priyamani wrote for the latest issue of the Art of Eating newsletter. The title of the article is Tasting a Tasteless Taste.
1: The very first time I've tasted it, now it seems to me must have been 1997, So, it was a wedding in Chetinar. Chettynard is a very beautiful part of, uh, you know, an area in Tamil Nadu in in South India. And it was for one such uh, wedding of a family friend uh, who are from the Chettyar community and um, and you know it's a, you would expect a classic Tamar virinde or a Tamar sapade, which is um, you know a meal laid out on a banana plate on a banana leaf, and you'll be sitting on a long table and uh, and food is served in sequence. But surprisingly, what arrived first was a bowl, and um, that that, that very thing surprised me, because you don't often see utensils being used that way in a traditional meal. And then a melamine bowl showed up, and uh, in this melamine bowl was a very, very thin yellow soup, Um, and I I took a spoon of the soup. um, and it was very different tasting. I have not tasted anything like that before. So I, I, I take a couple of spoons and then it's really delicious. It's, I can find cauliflower florets in it. I can see some fennel seeds. And um, I remember that the broth was really thin. Um, and then I found, and then something, you know, uh, I could feel something in my mouth. And then I, I sort of slowly take that out uh, from my mouth. It's a bit embarrassing to put your fingers in your mouth. It's not etiquette at all. I'm pretty sure that's that's global, right? So even though you would eat with your hands in India, it's not, it's not okay to put your hand into your mouth and pull something out. And um, I, I pull out something that looks very black, gray, Papery, kind of weird. And, uh, and, I, and I was just looking at it when the guy next to me said, oh, ad pasia, you know, in Tamil. And he was like, is that moss? And I was like, oh, is that moss? Ma-? I mean, pasi is a word that, it's a Tamil word you would use to describe anything that was, uh, you know, growing on walls, slimy stuff. Um, for example, even seaweed is called kadal pasi. Um, or the stuff that comes out of the sea. So just the connotation of that was not very appetizing. So I very quietly left that little piece in the corner of my leaf, and I I find my way out of that place. I don't continue with my meal. That was my very first experience.
0: Back then, Priya had no idea what it was that she'd fished out of her mouth. Fast forward 20 years...
1: I was out with my mother who was was trying to buy wholesale spices. She was trying to buy, you know, cumin and mustard and... And turmeric, some for herself and some to pack for me to bring back to Denmark. So we were out in the market, and uh, and the shopkeeper had a lot of these other spices with him. So I just picked up a lot of things that looked curious and that I had not uh, tasted before, because I've been working on this um, on a visual encyclopedia of Indian food for a long time now, and so uh, new ingredients um, or things that I haven't encountered before are obviously of extreme interest so I said okay let's just you know it's one of those things you just see a lot of new things and you pick up you pick them up in a rush and the shopkeeper said you add it to biryani so it sounded interesting and I put it into my bag and I brought it a couple of months after that so I my my day job is um, you know I work as a designer at um, together with my husband where we work and we 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 design um, environment emission sensors and, and that means we design sensors and sensor systems for monitoring outdoor air pollution and indoor air pollution. And uh, basically, we work with the environment uh, emissions. And I was involved in developing education material for schools uh, regarding air quality. And some of the material that I, I received uh, to develop this, uh, this study material, one of the items was this packet of, um, of lichens because lichens are um, are bio indicators of air
0: quality. These lichens, which are stunted and gritty in polluted environments rather than lush and leafy, led to Priya's light bulb moment.
1: The the lichens that were in small ziplocs they had uh, they had labels on them, and one of them said Parmotrema and. Um, and then when I looked at that, it sort of reminded me of this spice that I had picked up or this packet I had picked up in India a couple of months before. So I uh, I came back home and that night, um, so there I had a lichen in my kitchen and that was going to be flavoring biryani. Uh, all of that sounded a little funny. Um, I wasn't sure if I was on the right track. Um, so <laughs> I love calling up people. <laughs> so one of the first things I did next morning was to uh, was to you know ring up this number on the on the packet which had uh, the, the, the 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 wholesale trader's number was on the packet and it was a number based in Delhi. So I I rang them up and it's not often easy to find information when you call them because. They also don't know who you are and why you're being curious about something that is, you know, not, not something everybody would be curious about. You could be an authority. You could be from, you know, the agencies that monitor these things. So they don't often tell you many things. So he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that comes from the Himalayas and it's really rare and um, it's a lot of labor to collect them. And and he wouldn't tell me more. And I said, but who do you sell it to? Who, you know, how do you cook this? And then he just said, you would put it in a masala. And I said, what kind of masala? He said, well, you know, a lot of masala manufacturers come and buy it from me. So,
0: You say this, this wholesaler told you that it came from the Himalayas and, and that it, it, it's a lot of labor to produce. So, how, I mean, I, I, I don't quite get it. How, do, how, are they, how is it being produced?
1: What I learn after that by... Then you know contacting other um, traders and I'm sort of piecing this puzzle together is that um, these lichens are scraped off the trees, uh, particularly broadleafed oak trees in the lower Himalayan region and um, it's a lot of seasonal work. So seasonal workers uh, arrive there. Uh, They are migrant labor often um, or tribals, local tribals who are involved in this Um, and they scrape it off. They have a small um, knife-like tool and they would scrape these lichens off slowly off the bark and they would collect them. And then they are brought to a huge, uh, to a collection center um, in the valley and they are then sorted based on you know morphology. So uh, the Usnia or the ramalina would look different from the palmotrema. So they would they would do a visual inspection and
0: separate the lichens. And how do the how do the local people use it?
1: It's interesting because those who forage it don't use it. Hmm. Uh, so they don't have any culinary use for it, apart from the fact that it it does have a lot of uh, medicinal uses. So that's the other ancient knowledge that we've had of stone flower, um, as it's called. Um, did I tell you that was another um, misleading uh, path? Because, you know, a lot of different names for this lichen actually mean flowers that bloom on stone it's called shailaya in sanskrit or uh, shaila pushpam and it's called kalpasi kal also means stone so a lot of these different names in in indian languages all refer to stone so one would imagine it is harvested from stone but apparently not it's harvested from trees um and um yeah so yeah it's not these local communities don't use it for them it's it's pure economic value. They they sell it uh, to traders who then uh, have uh, various end customers. Um,
0: and it, I mean, as far as culinary use, although you <laughs> you had to go looking for it, it does seem to have been hiding in plain sight. I mean, you said you found it in, in packages of prepared garam masala.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Um, And you will notice that uh, these are not often said with the same name, right? So it's not... It's not like, you know, when you say cardamom, a cardamom is a cardamom. You wouldn't call it anything else. But here there are just so many different English names and uh, local vernacular names. So it really depended on where you picked up a packet of garam masala. If you picked up a packet of garam masala in, in, uh, in Hyderabad region or, you know, in the Deccan Plateau in, in that area, you would, you know, it would be called patthar phool or same with Lucknow, it would be called pathar ke phool, which means um, the stone flowers, literally. Literally,
0: hmm.
1: or, or then if you picked it up in Bombay and in that part of Maharashtra or in the western side, it would be called Dagarphool. Um If you picked it up in Tamil Nadu, the, the, the same manufacturers sometimes label their products differently for you know for retail in different parts of India, and then they changed the name. They would call it Kalpasi, hmm. and in many cases, I realized they were not even declared. Now, this becomes obvious when you look at, uh, you know, say, for example, very uh, regional cuisines where uh, the, uh, the uh, stone flour is an essential ingredient. So there are two very prominent kitch- regional kitchens in India where it's used. One of them is in Chetinad, of course, where a lot of the Chettinad food uses a base flavor of stone flour. Thrown into hot oil, so that's their way of ex- of extracting flavour. And in um, in Maharashtra, they brace it, they dry roast it, and and grind it into a masala. The you know the way they extract flavour from it is very
0: different. The, there seems to be this contradiction that the lichen itself mm. doesn't seem to taste of anything. And yet, it, it seems to be an important ingredient in, in spice mixes and in, and in recipes. So, how, how do you how do you understand that?
1: No one can really tell you what it tastes like. And when you put it into your mouth, it is it's like eating paper. It doesn't taste of anything. So. Um... Um, so I, I called up a lot of different um, chefs who work in restaurants, and people had time to Zoom and 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 chat. And um, I spoke to many of them and trying to understand how they use uh, stone flour in their cooking. And they were not able to tell me a precise flavor contribution that say um um you know a cinnamon would have or a saffron would have this sort of eluded uh, words it people couldn't put them in you know uh, they couldn't describe it so it was a hopeless uh, uh, conversation to have but they said one thing they said if if that needs to be in a recipe say a nihari which is a bone broth um or a goda masala and you don't add it it doesn't taste like what it needs to taste so this is very important for flavor but we just don't know what that flavor is but it's it has it's a very key ingredient and you know it when it's missing so mm. that was the clue i got you know it when it's missing i said well i think i just need to put my my kitchen lab niftiness to use and i said what if i did not consider this as a spice for an for an instance and i said this is an ingredient And let me try and do what you would do with other ingredients. And I think those experiments, those very simple experiments, help me understand what the landscape of flavors that this lichen can create could be. Let me give you an example. Um, For example, you know, when I said, okay, let me first soak it. That's the first thing you can do. You can soak it in water. And um, I let it uh, soak in distilled water overnight. Um, Next day morning, the lichen had turned pink. It's a very faint pink. And uh, when you smelt it, it had this very beautiful woody note pine woody note you could feel like you were in a forest but it also had this very faint masala like flavor um i cannot you have to experience it and then i took this soaked lichen it had become soft and very pliable because as i told you it's very dry before and i tasted it and it was sweet it was intensely sweet and the sweetness is very intense. I don't know if you, have, if you have tasted stevia leaves, you can relate it to that kind of sweetness. It's intense sweetness, but that's followed by this sharp bitterness because it's just so sweet. It's like when you eat, uh, if you eat uh, uh, you know, um, a small uh, piece of, um, of artificial sweetener, um, it has this sweetness, but it also has a very uh, pronounced bitter overtone to it. Uh, it had that kind of uh, taste. And then I uh, decided to steam it. So I, um, yeah, when you steam it, the house fills with the smell of um, this fine, spicy masala flavor. I'm saying this again because masala just seems to come to your mind because when you smell a masala blend you can never place one ingredient in it. It's always this medley of things. So you can't say there's one prominent spice in it. It's it's all mingled and they've messed around with each other's flavor molecules and it's a bit like that here. Then I decided to fry it. I said, what if we put some heat on it and fried it? So I took that steamed piece and I fried it. Now when it turns incredibly crisp. You can it's, It almost crumbles in your finger when you've uh, fried it. It's, and it fries instantly. Um, and then when I tasted it, it tasted of nothing. Huh. And I said, okay, that sweetness was gone. Uh, also, the sweetness was gone when I steamed it. So water was still there. It was saturated with water like it was before. But steaming somehow removed the sweetness. Um, and then I... Um, you know, I had this fried piece, and I put a bit of, I put a small piece of Maldon salt on it, because you often need a, you know, a carrier of taste of some sort. You need a sugar or you need a salt to carry the taste. And when I ate that second piece, gosh, that was incredible. That was delicious it tasted like i had uh, i had uh, you know shaved portobello or or shiitake into very thin slivers and i was frying it and eating it i don't know it was it was just had this really nice mushroomy flavor to it it was really delicious you can you can see that from my kitchen experiments there is a direct connect to how these communities use the spice so Chetinad, the spice is thrown into hot oil So they fry it literally, right? Just like you would do a a classic Indian tarka, where the uh, the fat soluble flavors are 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 drawn from it. But then, if you went to Maharashtra, as I said, you would they would roast, dry roast it, and and that makes the masalas of the region very very dark because this gives it it contributes to the darkness apart from of course the region also brace all their spices a little more than um, than one would they don't just toast it they continue to toast it on slow fire for a long time so that eventually gives all their spice blends a dark tone but interestingly if you look at lucknow and uh, and hyderabad region they add it to a sachet they add it to a small what they call as potli and in this white cloth are a lot of different spices, and they let that steep in a broth. They let that cook, so it's again, it's the water-soluble flavonoids that are being uh, extracted there. So I think the the flavor is so different in these two in these very different ways of using the spice, and that I felt eventually connected the dots to my kitchen experiments for me at least.
0: Yeah, lichens are pretty slow growing and and nobody's mm. nobody's actually farming them as far as i exactly. know so, exactly so how sustainable is the harvest
1: exactly so that's that's the big concern and uh when i when i was talking to dr ruprethi uh he said that um you know, I think it was 2010 that he mentioned that he was in Jim Corbett National Park, which is a very huge and important national park in Uttarakhand uh, region of North India, and uh, he was there by the fringe of the forest, and he could see that truck loads of lichens were being shipped being taken out so he was like that's a lot of lichens to be harvested and sent off in one go Um, it's not sustainable it's you know the whole regenerative harvesting is lost because people who are now arriving to participate in the labor force they are migrant labor the need and the demand for it is so high so there is no tacit knowledge of how these things have to be harvested lichens grow at about 2 to 3 millimeters a year. And Pamotrema is a slightly faster-growing lichen, but still it would take about 10 to 15 years before these can recolonize an area that can be commercially meaningful to exploit, if I make sense. So, uh, yeah, the rate at which it's being cut down is is definitely a cause of concern. And that was sort of the motivation to push this as a paper because um, if the lichen is now being used across the industry in general masalas which means masala manufacturers have have uh, it has dawned upon them that this is an incredible flavor source and the chances of people buying their masalas in a highly competitive market is higher if they use um, ingredients like these that are um, that bring a lot of umami to food um, they are going to go after it. They don't care how it's being harvested, how it's being brought down. So, I think one of my main missions was to create an awareness that this is the unspoken, unseen ingredient in those spice blends. So, please be aware of what you're trying to eat because it may be causing un, uh, you know, irreplaceable loss in these uh, in these ecosystems.
0: Well, I mean, ultimately. <laughs> If they over-harvest, then they won't have it anymore. But mm. um, it's interesting. You're based in Copenhagen. And to be honest, if, if you'd asked me before I read your article <laughs> whether there were any cuisines that used lichens, I would have guessed something Scandinavian. So I, I, I wonder, have you talked to anyone? Like when yes, you Zeppi yes. at Noma or, or Magnus Nilsson?
1: And yes, um, actually, when I uh, some of the experiments I did was uh, the, the starting point was when I when I read Magnus Nilsson's recipes with reindeer moss, and then I went on to investigate who eats reindeer moss. Is that a traditional diet? And I come to understand that uh, lichens have always been um, sort of food security for this part of the world. Um, um, one of the most common ways that it's consumed because lichens have. Not lichen polysaccharides, and these are not digestible by humans. So, if humans have to eat them for nutrition, which is not how stone flour is used in India, but if they have to eat it for nutritional value, then they have to eat it in a form where it becomes the body can receive, uh, can absorb it. And uh, a way that I read was that um, humans. Eat it after a caribou or a reindeer has eaten the has eaten these lichens. They harvest it from the rumen of these animals and then consume
0: it. Final question: um, Since you've, since you've done all this research, are, are you now using lichens more in your own cooking? <laughs>
1: No, um, no. I have a box of it. I use it very sparingly because you just need so little. You need just one frill if you're if you're infusing it in oil. That's more than enough. Little is more here. Less is more here. Um, yeah, and I've tried making my own goda masala and garam masala. But you'd be surprised how many people have written to me since saying they have tried using it in their garam masala mix and they have absolutely loved it. So uh, I think uh, that's an interesting feedback.
0: Priya Mani, author of Tasting a Tasteless Taste in the latest edition of the Art of Eating newsletter. It's behind a paywall, but in my opinion, Art of Eating is well worth a subscription. Priya also told me that Parmatrina lichens are widespread around the world. So maybe there are some growing on the trees in my local park. I'll have to see whether I can find some so that I can try this tasteless taste for myself. Priya's active on Instagram, on her own account, and for her visual encyclopedia of Indian food, which is spectacular. I'll put links to them both in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. I'm also on Instagram at eatthispodcast, and I'm having fun too on Mastodon. You're much more likely to find me there on X Twitter. Look for at ETP at indieweb.social. And that's about it for 2023. There will be another issue of Eat This Newsletter before the end of the year, with something special for all subscribers. I hope you enjoy it. My thanks to subscribers, old and new, and to the people who support the podcast with a donation. They help pay for essentials like transcripts. That means that I don't have to sell you the chance to listen without adverts, because there are no adverts. You can join those happy people at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. I do hope you've enjoyed all the episodes in this past series. Let me know if there are any you particularly liked or didn't like. Email jeremy at eatthispodcast.com. And with that, I'm off till early in the new year. So from me and this podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.